getting started. Yeah, so you're all invited to come and witness the baptism and be part of that joyful occasion. The parking may be a bit tight on the road, but uh, hey, we can walk. So Acts chapter 9, last verse is where we're going to begin. But I do love how God divinely orchestrates things, how he brings people together. And, and that's something music does. Have you guys ever been to an orchestra, uh, orchestral performance with, with a conductor, like with professional musicians? I love classical music, but I actually never have. I've never gone to an opera or I've seen bands play, but, but nothing that was fancy or, um, you know, where you'd have a conductor during your rehearsals and during the performance. And, and the role of a conductor is interesting because all the musicians are talented and gifted and they've, they've drilled for hours and years of their lives to be uh, competent and, and exceptional. But the role of the conductor, I was reading on a website, it's put this way, when the, where the maestros earn their coin is turning a workaday performance into something potentially special. Their knowledge, preparation, artistic vision, and leadership are all important, but above all, they are there to inspire inspiration. Um, not just a workaday performance, but something special. And see, that's what God does, is he, he brings us together for something special. And he brings people into our lives to do special things. And, and I find that inspiring. As inspiring as you would, I find a musician who will dedicate their life to playing um, centuries-old music, it is awesome to see when God orchestrates events. And we're going to read about that today. And as musicians respond instantly to the guidance of the conductor about tempo and pace and when to quiet and when to come in, so we are to be responsive to the spirit of the living God as he speaks to us in his word, as we fellowship with one another, that we would be responding to his movements. And unlike an orchestra where you have to earn the right to have that first chair, we were chosen by the grace of God. Uh, and we should work at it to do the things he's called us to do, but we don't earn that position. It's by his grace. And every role in the body is just as important as one another because we're all connected to Jesus, who is our head. We are all called to love and serve one another. There's no soloists in the body of Christ. We are all part of his body. So let's pray. and We'll begin. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the power of it that you are mighty to save, and you've given us a hope through Jesus Christ, who shed his blood on the cross, who rose from the dead, that we can be made alive and have eternal life. Thank you, Lord, that our life isn't just to be lived in some faraway place at another time, but you've given us a life to be lived for you right now that's abundant and awesome and full of your peace and joy. Thank you, Lord, for the challenges you bring our way. Thank you for the trials that you use to strengthen us. And we pray as we read your word, Lord, you would challenge each one of us and we would be moved to consider who you are and our relationship to you in Jesus' name. Amen. When you are in an orchestra and you're playing a performance, it is at a set time. Right? If you were to receive an invite, it, it would have a time on it. And, and all the performers know that. And the audience also knows that. So they all assemble at the same time. But see, God, he... He guides people, as we've seen in the book of Acts, to minister for him at all times and in all places, whenever it pleases him. 
And we don't know exactly when that'll be, when we'll be called upon to serve, or when we'll be led by him to do something that we wouldn't naturally do. And that's something we're going to read about today. God will move us to do things we never dreamed of doing. We were never comfortable doing. But he's the one who changes us. He makes us new. And we have these rigid ways that we expect God to speak or to work. Like Naaman, we expect, um, you know, he expected the prophet to come out and wave his hand over the spot and it would be gone. Yes, that would have been quick and easy, but God required faith. He wanted him to go dip in the Jordan seven times to be healed of his leprosy. And he was through the power of God. Don't you guys like quick and easy? Quick and easy sounds good. It's great. But see, God, he's not limited by your experience, your expectations, or your prejudice. He wants to free us from the limits that we've placed upon him to use us for his name. He has more in store for you than you can imagine right now. And this recurring theme in Acts is God does miraculously as he pleases. And he uses people in that process to do his will. So last week in Acts 9, we read about Jesus through Peter healing Aeneas, who had been paralyzed for eight years in Lydda. He was healed, and then Peter traveled to Joppa to raise Tabitha from the dead. And after the miracle was done in Acts 9.43, it says of Peter, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Living with a tanner was not agreeable for many reasons, especially for a Jew. Uh, A tanner was someone that would take raw hide and skins of animals, would scrape them, soak them to prepare them to make leather. It was extremely stinky, foul. It was reserved for the poorest of the people, and it was usually on the outskirts of town because of the stench. Because you've got, and they would actually gather dung and urine to soak the skin in. It was not a good place where you would say, you know, this is a, it would be like a one-star hotel or a half-star hotel. It was not a hotel, let me tell you. You did not want to live with the tanner. It was the one place you would avoid. It was on the outskirts. You're like, no, not there. But Peter, he goes and he stays with Simon, a tanner. I don't know why Peter chose to stay with Simon, the tanner. But I imagine he did so as he was led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he sent out the disciples, he had told them, whoever receives you, stay with them. And after you've arrived, don't look for a better deal. Remain in that place until you leave the village or the town. And so Simon the Tanner had offered hospitality. Peter did not turn it down, and he stayed with him many days. So he was obedient to Christ, and and it was like, oh, I, I don't think he was suffering because he was led by the Spirit. But And as a Jew, being around dead animals, right? Those were unclean things. To touch a dead body, that would make you unclean. And so here he is, a Jew, in Joppa, around dead animals and the stench, and he stayed there many days. God, through this, was amazingly planning him for something he had not ever thought of. It was kind of like Mr. Miyagi with Daniel LaRusso, who... He's got him sanding floors and painting fences and waxing cars. And he's like, man, my sensei, he said he was going to teach me karate. The guy's lazy. He wants me doing all his work for him. But through doing those chores, he was actually preparing him to be a champion. He just didn't realize it at the time. And in the same way, God puts us in situations 
And he's allowed experiences in our lives to form us into the people he knows. He knows where he's going. We don't always know where he's going. And we don't like sometimes where he's leading. But he knows, and we can trust him. So God was preparing Peter through this situation. Acts 10, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. We read of a man in Caesarea, Cornelius. He was a centurion. That means he was a Roman officer. He had charge over a 100 soldiers. That's a Roman name. And this group that he commanded was a group of volunteers uh, from Italy stationed in Caesarea. He's a Gentile, but he's described as a devout man. And that means that he feared the God of the Jews. It was a polytheistic uh, society where many gods were worshipped. Even um, Caesar would have been worshipped on a set day. But he was he was uncircumcised and not under the law, but he feared God. He and all his household. So he had a big impact on his family, also fearing God and fearing God only. He lived according to all the light that he had. He, he hadn't converted to Judaism, but he feared and honored God more than some that could trace their ancestry back to Abraham. So he openly honors God, he and his household. And this fear of God among the Romans was a bit of an anomaly. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. That would be a time for prayer among the Orthodox Jews. That was when the evening sacrifice would be done, according to the law of Moses. Uh, and as Cornelius is praying, he sees a vision. Later on in Acts, the next, further on in this chapter, in verse 30, he says, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. So he was fasting, and during this fast, he's praying, and suddenly this angelic being appears to him. It was a man, the appearance of a man, but his clothes were bright. It was definitely out of the ordinary, and it startled him to, to see the stranger dressed in such a manner and to call his name. And he says, what is it, Lord? The angel said that his prayers and his generous giving, that would be alms, giving to the poor, had come up as a memorial before God. A memorial is something that helps us to remember. Many cities, we have the cenotaph or the, um, the tomb of the unknown soldier. Some, that's a, something that is meant to remind us of a sacrifice. We drive past graveyards dotted with tombs or uh, makeshift memorials by the side of the road where someone's lost their life, tragically. These are memorials to remind us. And those are usually reserved for after someone goes the way of the earth, after they die. But in this case, his good deeds came up as a memorial before God while he was alive. And so God responded by revealing himself to Cornelius. Our praying and giving, it sends a message that God responds to. 
We don't pray to the air. That's what this reminded me of. Just like, you know, when we pray, we're actually speaking to God and he hears us. When we do things unto him, he receives that and he will reward. And uh, he'll reward us with his presence and with promises. Cornelius did not know Jesus and God responded to a prayer of someone who didn't know Christ at that time, but he wanted to reveal himself to him. It's crazy that some angel knew his name, had a message from God, and gave him instruction about what to do. I mean, if you prayed and that happened, that would be pretty wild, wouldn't it? It would just bolster your faith to say, wow, I knew I was praying to God and that he was hearing me, but, but the fact that an angel came and that an angel knew my name, the message is getting through and just been encouraged in faith. Cornelius is told to send for Simon, whose surname is Peter, in the town of Joppa, lodging with Simon a tanner. Angels are not saved by the gospel. I was like, well, couldn't we make this efficient? You know, the angel comes. He's like, you know, your alms have come up before me. I want you to know the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Well, this angel had not been saved through the gospel. But he was going to connect him with someone who had Peter. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Talk about divine orchestration. So there's this step required for Cornelius to send a messenger to retrieve Peter. And this is a common way that God works. God who knew Cornelius, he knew Peter, he knew the message that he was going to send. He could have revealed much more of his plan at that time, but all he says is, there's this guy named Peter in Joppa. That's it. Doesn't tell him how, like why? Why are we going to talk to him? Didn't say. So there's that step of faith, and he did so because he feared and trusted God. I just want to point out these two things that he does here. He prayed, Cornelius, he prayed, and he gave generously. I believe our flesh rebels against both of those things. That's not our natural inclination to be praying or to give. Prayer can seem like a waste of time. It it doesn't, uh, it seems quite... uh, an imperfect science that doesn't really yield the results that we want when we want and how we want. When you talk of giving, people will gladly give their money to an institution if they can be guaranteed a return. They're happy to give in that sense. But without any promise of return, are we as we're a bit more reluctant to give, I would say. You know that you have all the time there is to pray more. All of you have all the time there is, 24 hours a day. God's given that to you. And so the time that you have, we could pray more. And the things that you've received from God, you can give. He has given you everything that you possess. And so by his grace, these are things that we can do for him, and they're pleasing in his sight. But even if we do good things, his almsgiving, his prayer, did not grant him, he did not earn the presence of God that day. He didn't earn the right to get a message from the Almighty. Cornelius knew nothing of grace, but he was experiencing his first taste. The sweetness of God showing his favor on someone who is completely unworthy, who is reaching in the dark for him and shining his light upon them. We mistakenly think, if I pray more or if I give give more, God will give me what I want. Has ever happened to you too? (laughs) I'm including myself. 
Like, oh, if I do more, well, then I can get the return I want. But prayer or giving with selfish motives, it's a foul stench in the nostrils of a God, uh, even as living at a tanner would be for you or me. It's not acceptable. Verse 7, And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The angel departs. Cornelius immediately calls two of his personal servants and a devout soldier. This means he too was a believer. I believe Cornelius likely had a big impact on him being a believer. And uh, the same word for devout, it's the same word Paul used to describe Ananias, the one who came to Paul so he received his sight. So we know that he feared the Lord. I love the fact that this man, Cornelius, he has no, he, he fears God, but his knowledge of God is imperfect and incomplete. He didn't know the gospel yet. And he was, God revealed himself to Cornelius because Cornelius was seeking God. He was praying to God and then God responded to him. It wasn't in reverse. He sought the Lord and the Lord revealed himself to him. And, you know, God's given you the capacity to seek him. He's given you a mind. He's given you eyes and ears and a conscience. And he's given you his word. And he's connected you with people in your life who know Jesus Christ. And all men are without excuse when it comes to the knowledge of God. Romans 1 says that. That God has revealed himself through what he has made. And even if you did not have the physical abilities you have, uh, you can still find God if you seek him with your whole heart. But if God hasn't revealed himself to you, it may be that you have not sought him or cared to. You know the woman, Helen Keller. She was an American who was rendered blind, deaf, and mute after a severe fever around two years old. This did not prevent her from having a relationship with Jesus Christ. She said this, I thank God for my handicaps, for through them I have found myself, my work, and my God. She was an extraordinary woman, but she served an extraordinary God who opened her eyes to the truth. So none of us can say on the day of judgment, Lord, you didn't, you didn't make yourself real to me. You are without excuse. He says, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. If you want to know God, he will reveal himself to you when you seek him. Verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice said to him, came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything clean, common, or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. The next day, while the messengers had almost completed their 50-kilometer trek to Joppa, 
Peter went on the housetop to pray. You know, I would be on that housetop a lot if I lived with a tanner. That fresh sea breeze would be really welcome. Like, woo! It's a bit distracting in here. I think I'll go up on the roof. Peter, you're up on the roof a lot. (laughs) Must be very pious. The sixth hour, that's noon. Peter was hungry. It suggests that they were preparing some food at that time. And as he's praying, he's astonished to see the heaven open. There's this vision he can see of this object being lowered down from heaven. And it's a sheet, and it's got all sorts of animals in it, both clean and unclean. There could have been a pig, goat, sheep, camel, horses, all kinds of animals in this, even reptiles and birds. And as God's people, one of the distinctions they were to make is between the clean and the unclean. Basically, God said, here's my law. I'm going to tell you what's right, and I'm going to tell you what's wrong. I'm going to put before you a a life, promise of life, and a curse. If you choose to follow me, you will be blessed. If you choose to rebel against me, you'll have a curse upon you, and all these things will occur to you. And one of the things was involving diet. They were were to make, because Jews were God's special people, to make a distinction between a clean animal and an unclean animal. They weren't even to touch the carcass of a dead animal, lest it make them unclean. There would be ceremonial washing they would have to do. You guys know that when you're really hungry, it's probably not the best time to go shopping for food, right? You may buy a bit impulsively, maybe buy a lot more. Um, Like you might buy a six-kilo piece of meat, because you're hungry, but really, that's a lot more than you need at that time. Peter's really hungry, and he sees this vision when he's hungry, and the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And go, oh, man, that looks pretty good. I am hungry. No. He was like, full stop. No way, Lord. Not a chance. Surely not. I've never eaten in my life anything uncommon or common or unclean. And he had kept the law concerning eating meat his whole life. I expect it was a sort of pride to him. And many times he had actually gone hungry because he wasn't sure about the meat. Under the law, it wasn't just to eat the right animal, but it needed to be a certain part of the animal killed in a certain way by a devout person. There, there is like a lot that goes into that. I was looking up. If, if the blade is dented, that is used, unclean. If the person who kills it, it's not slaughtered in the right manner, or if they're not devout, unclean. If the animal appears to be totally healthy, but on closer examination of the lungs, there may be an illness, unclean. So there's been not only the law, but there's been thousands of years of oral tradition that were impacting What's clean and unclean? So there was a very, like, he's like, no way. I'm not touching it. I only eat kosher that I know is kosher. And then God says, Peter's re- to Peter's refusal, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. So you are forbidden to call unclean what I have cleansed. This happened three times. Every time, rise and eat. Uh, kill and eat, Peter. And he's like, nope. Come on, Peter. Rise and eat. Nope. Not going to do it. There was more going on here than Peter knew at the time. God was challenging Peter's views of food. But the bigger issue was people. That was the point. 
It wasn't about the food. He was using food to point to something else. Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees that a lot of what they taught concerning the law of God was the tradition of men packaged as the law of God. He says, you deny the law of God to keep your tradition. Tradition to you is more important than the law. Peter will later say in this chapter, it was unlawful for a Jew to visit or associate with Gentiles. Now, I've looked through the law, um, and I can't see any prohibition of that, but it was the common practice. Jews would avoid contacting uh, a Gentile. They would not go into their house. They would not invite them in. When Jesus spoke at the woman with the well, John was careful to say, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, period. They don't deal with them. No business, no conversation, nothing. The Jews avoid them. When Jesus was delivered to Pontius Pilate, the Pharisees, they would not enter the house lest they be defiled. That's in John 18, 28. They're like, we're not even going in there because we'll be defiled to walk through that door. That's not in the law, but it was in their oral law. Later in Acts, Paul confronted Peter because when the Jews came, he left the company of the Gentiles to eat with the Jews. So this was just a common practice, that they would avoid Gentiles. Like there were distinctions made between clean and unclean food, the people were switched on to who was Jewish and who was not, who was a foreigner. They looked at their clothes, they listened to their voice, they observed their traditions. How are they washing their hands? They would look at every little detail to see if they were true Jews or not. And if they were not following or devout, they would not associate with them. Since I'm not a Jew and I don't know the nuances of the culture, I think using diet as an example is really good for us because this is something we understand. We all have to eat, right? Food. I imagine there are foods you avoid eating for different reasons. You may not, it may not agree with you. You don't like the taste or the texture. You may not believe it's healthy to eat. You're like, oh no, that's full of saturated fat. Or it has this in it and that's bad, right? Or you have an allergic reaction to it. So obviously you want to stay away from that. I imagine vegetarians have a reason for being a vegetarian. There's some reason about why they eat what they do, how they prepare the food that they eat the way they do. You guys tracking with this? You have reasons for the things you eat, you choose or not eat? Now, the reason Peter did not eat the food is because it made him an abomination before God. It was a sin. Now, it's very likely not the reason why you choose not to eat a certain food, because it's wickedness or it's an abomination before God. It may be abominable to your taste buds, but if you were to eat that donut, it, you wouldn't believe that it makes you unholy in the sight of God, right? So the reason why Peter was refusing to eat this meat is because it was an abomination before God. It was a gross sin. That's why he wasn't eating. In this way that certain foods were off the table for Peter, there were some relationships that were off the table as well, even as a Christian. He knew Christ. He'd walked with Christ for many years. He'd been born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet he had this traditional uh, approach to relationship. Now, if you saw food, if you see food that's not recognizable, is it appetizing? 
Electric. I have no idea what that is. What is that? You need to tell me what that is before I eat it. Right? If you cannot recognize what that mushy thing is and that kind of hairy thing, no, I'm not hungry now. Push it away, right? I, I don't recognize it. I don't want it. If it doesn't look like food, how can it make you hungry? It can't. Peter knew what clean foods were. He recognized what was permitted and what was prohibited. And he was very quick to size people up based upon their accents and their, the way that they spoke and the things that they said. God wanted to change the way that Peter saw food, but more importantly, how he viewed people, how he interacted with them. He wanted to free him from the prejudice that was totally stamped on his character from an early age. And he wanted to change the way that he saw other people and his dealings with them. And instead of sizing people up as clean, unclean, common, acceptable, you know, Jew, Gentile, just judging people right off the bat, like, okay, I'm not hanging with that guy because he did this, because he said that. One time he ate that food. He's not my kind of person. God wanted to change that about him. Revolutionary. I imagine Peter hated the idea of even eating pork because it was unclean to him. Like, he didn't like it. He didn't want to taste it. He hated it. He wanted nothing to do with it. It was likely easier for Peter to imagine that God could forgive Gentiles rather than explain why he would. And that's an important distinction. If you enjoy red meat, you can't imagine not eating it. Like, why would I not eat this? It's really good. I enjoy it. Um, and, and there may be a vegetarian who becomes physically unwell thinking about eating meat. You don't even have to taste it. If you just start thinking about eating it, it makes you feel sick. And you say, I can't imagine doing that. And this is the kicker. This is where it's driven home. As skeptical and picky as you might be about food, discerning about food, know that you are at least that much and even more picky concerning people and relationships. That's the point that God's making here to Peter. Verse 17, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Peter has no idea what this vision was about, the sheet being dropped down, rise, Peter, kill and eat, what, what God has cleansed, do not call common. And he was not able to figure out what he was talking about. Like, what is that? This is unexpected. So while he's thinking about it, three strangers arrive at the gate. That would not have been odd to Peter. He was a bit of a stranger in Joppa himself, rather new. He'd only stayed there a few days. But what was odd is that they were asking for him by name. Three people, Gentiles, he did not know, standing at a gate in Joppa, saying, hey, where's Peter? And while he's thinking about it, the Holy Spirit said, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, and go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So the vision, 
the voice, these men coming, they're all connected. When you hear someone's looking for you and you don't know them, are you happy? Or is your guard a bit up? Like, why are you so friendly to me? I don't know you. How do you know who I am? And and so we're like, I, I definitely have the guard, like the fortifications are... Okay, are you trying to sell me something? Because if you are, you can just, you know, head on your merry way. I'm sure there's someone that loves your product, but I am not interested because I didn't ask you to be here. I always wonder about what their angle might be. But God spoke to him and said, more than open the door, he said, go down and go with them. Whoa, that, that's like uh, taking it to a whole new level. The reason why God commanded Peter to do this is because it was completely against his natural inclination. He would not have brought them in in the first place, and he would never have thought to go with them wherever they were going. But God was working. God had orchestrated this, and he was using it to strengthen the faith of Cornelius and his servants, to show his mighty power and wisdom, and also to move upon Peter and to change him. You know, this isn't the first time that The word of the Lord came to a Jew who was staying in Joppa, is it? Where God said, arise and go. God had spoken to Jonah. He said, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it because their sin has come up before me. It was a memorial of wickedness. It had come up before the Lord. Cornelius' good works had come up as a memorial for the Lord. And now he's telling Peter, now, Jonah, he decides at the word of the Lord, he's like, I'm not going, because he hated the Ninevites. He didn't want to warn them about impending judgment. He was happy to watch it burn. But what he did, he he took a trip. He booked a cruise and went the opposite direction. Now, Peter, God speaks to him, says, arise and go with these men. Three times Peter had been told, rise, Peter, kill and eat. What was his response every time? Not so, Lord, no way, surely not. Do you see the contradiction with not so, Lord? No, Lord. If Lord, if God is your Lord, that means he is your master. You are his servant, and whatever he says, you do because of your relationship with him. You realize that he is God, he is your master, and he has the right and the privilege, and he's worthy to tell you what to do. If God is our master and we are his servants, then our response to his word is to be yes and amen. That's to be our response. So the Spirit of the Lord spoke to Peter. He leads him gently. He says, go down with these men, doubting nothing. There was a lot of doubt at that moment, but he went. Verse 21, then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Peter's obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He didn't hide and have like a messenger, like, okay, tell these guys something. All right, I'm not here. Don't, 
I am definitely not here right now. Yeah, I'm in a meeting. I'm somewhere else. I've gone on a trip. No, he goes down and says, yes, I'm the man. I am Peter. And well, why are you here? Like, what's, what's the purpose of this visit? And they said, well, Cornelius, he's a centurion. He's a just man, a devout man. And uh, God's spoken to him through an angel and has summoned you to speak to him. And then Peter did something which he likely had never done in his life. He invited three Gentiles in and lodged them. This meant serving, eating, talking, sharing, maybe even touching. These were all like, no, 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 to a Jew. This does not happen with a Gentile. We are not brethren. We are not of the same, cut out of the same cloth. But God was doing something in Peter. He was challenging him. He offered them hospitality as he would to a fellow Jew. Granted, they were in Joppa. They were away from the watchful eyes of family and the Sanhedrin and the militant Pharisees in Jerusalem, but it was a big step. It was probably a much bigger step than spending many days living at the Tanner's house. It was big. It'd be like you've never eaten meat your entire life, and then you sit down to a in a 21-ounce steak, and you just go for it. Woo! Challenging. Okay, fine, four ounce. I always look for, well, I used to traditionally look for larger pieces of meat if I could find them. Now imagine how differently we would treat strangers if we saw them as people God has sent to us. He had a very different view of these three men who called him by name because God had sent them. So he treated them differently than he would have had he not known that. Had he, he didn't have the vision. He had just been praying, and there's these three strangers at the door. He, he approaches them very differently. But see, God spoke to him. God ministered to him. God had words he intended Peter to say to Cornelius, and he also used Peter to supply those words. Let's not think that our service for the Lord is just in words or just in service. See how both of them go together. Peter isn't like, well, I'm happy to tell you guys the gospel, but to offer hospitality, to go to your place, that's forbidden for me. No. And he also didn't just say, well, guys, I can see your heart up. I'll, I'll give you lodging for the night, uh, such as it is, but... Um, you know, may the Lord reveal himself to you and send them on their merry way. The people that God connects us with, and there are no accidents with God, he intends to minister to them through us. I hope this is shocking, because it's the truth. It is shocking. Like, what? Have you ever invited a stranger in for a meal? Would you ever offer lodging to three strangers while you were living at another person's house, and it was the Tanner's house. You might be embarrassed to offer such accommodation and be like, oh, I'd love to offer them something a bit better than this. Sorry about the stench, the dead animals, you know, the carcasses everywhere. I mean, they have to soak them for sometimes a year. Ugh. You know, you don't need to scour the streets to find people with needs unless God directs you to, of course, uh, God will bring them to you. They're people that he's already brought into your life. 
that he intends to use you in some way in their life, to encourage them, to pray for them, to minister to them by his grace. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. You know, the strangers that God brings to us may not be angelic in any way. Um, you know, that coworker, or neighbor, or stranger on the street, someone who you just don't, you're not comfortable with and don't get along with, and you don't, there's no connection. Um, may be as detestable as meat to a vegetarian, but I encourage you to walk in love and to seek the Lord and how you can bless that person, how you can minister to them. The scripture says the thing that we owe all men is to love one another. That's in Romans 13.8. He says, owe no man anything except to love one another. And love, God's love, is not making life easy for people, or obliging us to obey their demands, or to put us at the mercy of men. That is not the love of God. Having received love from God, we offer his love to others in the way that he directs us, because we're at his mercy, not the mercy of men. So God's divine orchestration, the things that he does, the things that he uses, he'll use a vision, he'll use a person, He'll use even our food to teach us a lesson if we'll listen. And almost 2,000 years ago, God orchestrated the sending of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners. When Jesus was crucified on Calvary, there were two thieves crucified on either side of him. They could not earn an audience with him, and yet he stooped to being nailed to a cross next to them. That is just mind-blowing. He was bruised and pierced for the sins of the world. And as Jesus hung, bleeding and dying, Luke 23, 35, it says, And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, Save yourself. You know, the Jews and the Romans weren't the only ones who mocked Jesus on that day. Mark 15, 32, it says, Those crucified with Jesus scorned him. They reviled him. They defamed him. They blasphemed him. So Jesus, he comes to earth, and he dies as a sacrifice for sin. As he's dying, these criminals on either side of him mock him, and they scorn him, and they treat him like dirt. We have a lot of common, a lot in common with those men, because we too are under this, the punishment of sin and death. We deserve judgment for our crimes against God. Every human being is born under the curse of death. They were getting what they deserved. Now, if you could turn in your Bibles to Luke 23, starting in verse 38. Let's read that together. Luke 23, verse 38. 
it reads, And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanged were one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Above the head of Jesus, there was this inscription written in three languages, not just in Hebrew. It's for all people to read and understand. This is the king of the Jews. Jesus came to save sinners, Jew and Gentile. If there was room on that sign for every language under heaven, it could have been written so that everyone would know that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. One of them looked at the sign and called Jesus a fraud. He said, if you're the Christ, if you are the son of God, save yourself and us. Prove it to me. But the other one who had mocked Jesus at a point, something in him had changed. And he said, man, don't you fear God? You're just getting what you deserve. But he's done nothing wrong. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And just like that, for the asking, Jesus offers divine hospitality, not in a tanner's shack, but in heaven. In the glorious presence of the Father forever. For an undeserving criminal, because he was forgiven through his faith. The blood of Jesus, it cleanses all who repent and trust in him. Is Jesus your Savior? Have you looked to him and called him Lord? He will be your Lord if you'll admit your sin and believe on him. And how grateful that man must have been in his dying moments as his legs were broken to know that he had, God had orchestrated his salvation. He had brought him into contact with the one, the only one in the universe who could save him. And he did. And he knew it. He passed in a moment from death to life. Right as his life was ending, he was entering a new life. So today is a day we remember on the first Sunday of the month, the price that Jesus paid for the, on the cross for our sins. It's a day of proclamation of his love. He demonstrated his love through his death on the cross. And this proclamation goes far beyond songs or words. We proclaim this through our love because it's his love in us. For Cornelius, faith meant praying to God and giving unto God and sending messengers to a tanner's house far away. That's what faith looked like for him. For Peter, it meant to stop calling unclean what God had cleansed, to believe that God had actually cleansed the Gentiles, uh, and to receive Gentiles, to offer hospitality, and then to go with them. And we'll talk about that next week. I cannot explain how God orchestrates our lives, but I know that he does. And let's be those who confess our prejudices and our pickiness with people. And that we say, Lord, I've been unloving to this person. I've pushed them away when you would have me reach out to them. I've been unkind to them because I've ignored them. Let the Lord speak to you. And may he move you to do the things he's called you to do. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Thank you for the kindness you've extended to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we are in awe of the way that you have reached down to us, that you have humbled yourself, and you've given us this example in Scripture. Lord, show us where we've been wrong about people, where we have really treated them worse than food. And I pray that you would uh, just let your light shine into the dark recesses of our hearts, Lord. Take away the prejudice, the bitterness, the way that we judge and size people up, the way that we uh, have treated people. Lord, please forgive us. Thank you that you have shown us that forgiveness and acceptance uh, that we desperately want and need. And thank you for uh, your word, just how powerful it is. I pray you'd speak to every heart and that you'd minister to, us, minister to each one in Jesus' name. Amen.